1: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us.
3: What would you like the power to do? Mobile
1: banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA member FDSE. It's
2: very
3: difficult to keep the line between the past
1: and
2: the present. you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us.
1: Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tasha Robinson, here again with...
3: Keith Thepps,
0: Scott Tobias, and Genevieve Kosky.
1: On last week's show, we talked about Lawrence of Arabia, David Lean's 1962 classic about old school desert power and the Arab tribes in World War I who banded together to fight. Either under the heroic larger-than-life-but-secretly-troubled leadership of the British Colonel T.E. Lawrence, or with him as just sort of a helpful liaison in the war they were already fighting, depending on who's telling that story. The leadership in Frank Herbert's 1965 sci-fi novel Dune follows a similar course, but without the tension of a real-life figure to contradict some of the fictionalized epic. Denis Villeneuve's Dune Part 1 starts the process of adapting the novel, taking its time in introducing a struggle between powerful families in a far-flung space opera imperium, leading to a war that all but wipes out one of them. Timothy Chalamet stars as Paul Atreides, the son and heir of a clan leader who's been ordered to take control of a crucial and profitable planetary outpost that produces spice, a powerful hallucinogen that enables space travel. But the emperor is deliberately setting Paul's family against the powerful Harkonnen tribe, who have controlled the spice world for 80 years and don't want to let it go. This movie is just the first half of the story, which, we should note, was made with no sign of the second half having been greenlit, so we have no idea as of this recording whether Villeneuve will get the chance to complete his story. But given how Herbert's novel was inspired by Lawrence's life and work, there are some strong resemblances here, which we'll lay out after we take a moment to take in the sweep and scale of the half of the story that we did get. We'll talk about desert power and a different kind of messiah mythmaking after this break. <music>
0: Is so beautiful when the sun is low. Rolling
1: over the sands, you can see spice in the air. The outsiders ravage our lands in front of our eyes. Their cruelty to my people is all I've known. What's to become of our world,
0: Paul? Boy, <laughs> hey,
3: Duncan, can I trust you with something?
2: Yes, always. You know that.
3: I've been having dreams about a girl
2: on Arrakis. I don't know what it means. Dreams make good stories, but everything important happens when we're awake.
3: Hey, you want some muscle? I did No. We are House Atreides. There is no call we do not answer. There is no faith that we betray. Smile, Gurney. I am smiling. The Emperor asks us to bring peace to Arrakis. House Atreides accepts! I know you. There's something awakening in my mind. You need to face your fears.
1: Come with me. So what did everybody think of Dune, a.k.a. Dunk, a.k.a. Dune Part One?
2: (laughs) I really liked it a lot. Uh, And the thing about it was like, again, I had never read the the book until I read it this summer. You know, and of course I'd seen the the Lynch film and been somewhat baffled by it. Um, (laughs) But thinking again, it's just, this is not adaptable. You can't do this. And, And to see this film articulate the book as clearly and as purposefully and with the kind of like scale that this one did the impeccable casting i just thought it was kind of a miracle of a movie or at least miracle of a half movie (laughs) uh and i was i found it kind of overwhelming almost to the point where i'm kind of needing to see it again to see what it's about (laughs) because I'm just kind of impressed that it functions as well as it does, that, that it feels not rushed in the way that the, that the lynch foam does, that it feels like, that it feels graspable in every bit of character and intrigue that, that's in it, and that it has this really detailed realization of a pretty fantastical world that Frank Herbert had created. So I liked it quite a bit.
3: Me too. I went into it, I, I had high hopes. And knowing full well that it's, it's a really hard book to adapt, uh, one might even say impossible, although you could say impossible, except it was, it was done pretty, I think pretty successfully with this. It's a nice, smooth piece of storytelling. Visually, it's, it's completely, uh, overwhelming and striking. I, I, the, the Villeneuve tone, the sort of like, I don't even mean, you know how you describe it, but there's sort of like there's kind of a hypnotic quality to what he does and that's on full display here. Uh and I think it's really well cast too. I think this this was um mm-hmm. uh, smart casting all around. Although I didn't realize till the credits it was Stalin's Skarsgård, or I'd forgotten at least. As <laughs> as Baron Arcoted, <laughs> he's under a lot of under under a lot of makeup. But I, I was thinking, whoever that guy is, doing a good job.
1: <laughs> whoever that makeup artist is, doing a better job. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah uh yeah i am glad you brought up the performances because uh, or in just the casting i should say because i think you know sort of the, it's obviously not an ensemble piece like it's very much about paul atreides i still can't get over that he's named paul i know that this is like a very basic thing to, to uh, Come on, say jessica Jessica seems <laughs> more basic
2: than paul
0: yeah paul and jessica yeah uh, speaking of rebecca ferguson was probably my favorite part mm-hmm. of the film by uh of pretty large measure, although um, I did like the film pretty much overall. You know, I have some I have some nitpicks here and there, but I also like I have very little connection to Dune like as an entity. I haven't read the book. I haven't seen the Lynch film. My husband loves Dune. Like He he was very very excited to see this film and he really, really loved it as a fan of the book and the, the property in general. So, um, you know, I think it, the fact that it can be satisfying whether or not you bring that knowledge into it is reflective of the storytelling you know being pretty efficient as, as as Keith points out but also there is a sort of reverence for the details or the the sort of I don't want to call it fan service but just the the texture of the of the story that the that fans have have gravitated to and the specifics of of the characters yeah so I i I like dune (laughs) i'm I'm eyeing tasha's window because i keep seeing her nose scrunch
2: (laughs) (laughs) well i want to ask one question of genevieve before we get to tasha which is is the movie as clearly articulated as i think it is because again i had read the the book and so all of it was Mm -hmm. kind of clear to me but have someone who hadn't encountered this story or read this read this book did did you have trouble following it
0: I mean, the story itself is a pretty basic like chosen one narrative. I mean, there's there's obviously like this sort of tribal battle happening between the different houses, you know, and probably the most difficult thing for me as, you know, a non-reader to get my head around was just like what things were called, you know, because while you have Paul and Jessica, you also have... Benajesaret. 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 No yeah. Right. Uh, ben- Gesserit, yeah. Which, which, when someone just says it, you're like, wait, what is, what, <laughs> You know, <laughs> there's there's a lot of sort of like terms like that that kind of, you know, without s- the subtitles, uh, which I've, I think, as I've brought up semi recently on here, have become maybe a little too dependent on with, with home viewing. Some of that was, you know, maybe kind of flew over my head on the first three or four references. But by the end of the film, I was like, okay, I get it. They're order of witches, you know, (laughs) you know, and it does have that opening narration um which funnily enough steve missed uh he was getting refreshments and got caught in a, in a line um so so he he missed all the opening exposition but obviously he didn't need it but i think uh, but i obviously did so yeah now I, I knew what spice was and i'm good to go <laughs>
2: did, did you enjoy the the gom jabber this is the box he puts his hand in
1: no, is
2: the, is, the, is, the needle. Is, the, is the thing the needle right what's Thank the name God. of the box he puts his hand in is there a name for that i can't i can't recall
0: pain, pain. No, in the tradition of paul and jessica it's just called the box <laughs>
2: the box yeah okay, okay so now, now now no no i feel like i feel like tasha's about to bring the hammer down on this whole thing oh, but, oh, I, I'm the, curious oh yeah it
1: just it just hammered for days that is that is entirely <laughs> what i'm here for is the hammer now this uh i i went in as as blank on expectation as i possibly could because a lot of my co-workers at polygon had already seen it uh out of earlier screenings at film festivals or in New York, and they were really divided on it. I mean, this is, this has been a polarizer for sure. And we're seeing the exact same polarization in, uh, you know, critics, basically. Film Twitter is having one of its we're all at the same party and we're all glaring at each other and refusing to speak to each other parties over dune where some people absolutely despise this movie and some people are all in so I I went in just kind of like let's let's approach this as tabula rasa as you can for something where you've read the book and seen a previous goofy ass adaptation multiple times and are forever scarred by the uh, image of Sting prancing around in Hawkman Underoos with his entire is, body is scarred oiled. scarred
3: the word scarred or, or intrigued? Uh, <laughs> you know... Changed, transformed. Changed forever,
1: let's, let's just put it that way. <laughs> I really enjoyed this movie a lot. And mm-hmm. it's so pretentious, it's so airless, it's so humorless that <laughs> I, I found myself, like, as it okay. was... At,
0: Y'all
1: had your blah, blah. Let me have my moment.
0: <laughs>
1: I found myself like half an hour in kind of thinking, why am I enjoying this so much? Like, why am I so absorbed? I know how every beat of the story is going to go. Why am I feeling so much tension? And I think in the end, maybe it's because I think one of the big flaws of the Lynch's version of Dune is that it feels like it's full of space aliens, like in a, in a Since these are all space aliens and, you know, things like the Guild Navigators are more space alien-y than other things. But Villeneuve's Dune honestly feels like it's about human beings, like recognizable, familiar, accessible human beings in space. And they have you know, problems with pride and loyalty and, and duty and fear that are familiar. They're blown out to space operatic size, but they're recognizable. The people in this movie are recognizable in a way that the people in the previous Dune, and to some degree, even the, the people in the book weren't recognizable to me. So I think the casting is great, but also I I love the texture of this movie. I love the look of the ships and the settings, the layout of the sort of you know castle fortress uh, on Arrakis where they the Atreides come to land, the way Caladan the planet is visually differentiated from from Getty Prime where the Harkonnen live, which that kept tripping me up because it's Harkonnen in uh, the Lynch Dune and Harkonnen in uh, in this version, and it's about the only thing that's really different in terms of pronunciation. So it was a weird thing, but anyway, I just really enjoyed this movie. And when it became clear that it was wrapping up, I kind of felt a loss. I was like, no, I I know where we're going from here and I wanna see what you do with it. Genevieve Mm -hmm. mentioned the little details that might be considered fan service. And for me, there's a moment on Caladan when the Atreides are waiting for the, the Herald of the Emperor to make the announcement that they're headed to Arrakis, and they're standing there with uh, Thufir Howitt, the Mentat, who is kind of a human calculator, and Baron Lido, Paul's father, played by Oscar Isaac, turns to him and asks him a calculating question, and Thufir's eyes go white like his pupils roll up into his head and he mm-hmm. pronounces the information about like what this trip would have cost based on calculations in a very affectless uh, almost robotic voice and i just i found myself just thinking like this is a choice in a movie that's full of tiny detailed choices somebody paused to think about like what it would mean to be a human calculator and like how a calculator injection into the brain would differ from like the ordinary interactions with this person. And I just found myself like throughout the movie, noticing like all of these little details and little choices that make a world distinctive, that make a science fiction world different and interesting, but layered on top of all of these people that
0: actually felt like people.
3: That's uh, Steve McKinley Henderson is out there for always who's one of my this. Yeah. I'm always really happy when he shows stuff. I love, I love that guy.
0: And it was a ladybird reunion between him and Timothy it, Chalamet. It was, it was.
1: <laughs> so I mean, I don't know. Are there apart from only getting half of the story, are there mm. are there downsides to this movie? It sounds like we all perfectly like it. I mean it. it's
3: potentially a big downside. It really feels like you should get about a fifteen minute intermission and then come <laughs> back and watch part two, a la yeah. Lawrence, of, Lawrence of Arabia. I I feel like, you know, looking at the, the, you know, by the time this comes out, it'll be, it'll be, it'll already be decided. But, you know, looking at the tracking numbers, it looks like it's going to be relatively successful. I think it's successful enough to warrant a part two. But, uh, but, you know, I kind of hate that uh, for a while the talk was like, yeah, don't even bother because it's not going to be part two. Uh, If there is no part two, I'll be, you know, very disappointed. But I think there's, there's no, there's no reason not to see this just because of that. There's a lot, there's a lot to appreciate and, 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 and enjoy here.
1: I will say I've been a little exasperated throughout the pandemic with, you know, people doing the, especially directors doing the, well, you have to see this movie in a theater, you haven't really seen it thing. And Villeneuve was on that list. And given, you know, the relative safety of watching movies at home and the obvious convenience of watching movies at home, I've been a little prickly, like listening to directors be pushy about this. But this is a movie that I saw on an IMAX theater uh, screen. And, and my thought coming out of it was, I would not have wanted to see this any other way. And I'm not sure people who see it at home on HBO Max on day of release are, are really seeing this movie.
0: Tasha, we were chatting on the Zoom about this before you got on, but I think I do want to watch this movie. I, I'm very glad I saw it in the theater, even though I saw it in a theater that made me very uncomfortable. No one was masked. Uh, it was very crowded. It was upsetting. But, you know, also, but, but like wearing my mask through the whole movie, I felt like it just kind of like kind of contributed to the feeling, you know, <laughs> like it's like my own little still suit. But <laughs> um, but I will say, like, I do want to see this movie again. Hi. Like This is a movie that I would like to see stoned. And I, I didn't because I knew I'd be talking about it for this film. And I, I, I don't do that. But you know, a, a movie that just like is this visually stimulating. I think if you are a person who gets down with watching movies like that from time to time, uh, like it's it's a it's an exciting prospect for me to watch it that way and I, but I think probably the home viewing experience is probably a little better for that particular combination so uh, but I'm, I'm glad I saw it in the theater first, but I am going to do that at some point.
2: <laughs> <laughs> though, though you know what I, I will say you know there are different ways that things can kind of break in terms of how you might go about directing. Dune, and I think I've said this a million times. I'm going to say it again. It's like you, you know, it, it is a book that kind of requires somebody, a, a, you know, a combination of a George Lucas and Alejandro Jodorowski, somebody who has a good sense of classical, of the classical sort of hero's journey, and also somebody who can, can deliver kind of a hallucinogenic freak out. <laughs> yeah. And there's not a lot, Villeneuve is not a hallucinogenic freak out kind of guy. I mean, and I don't think this film is, is, is completely square, it's very earnest. But yeah, I mean, I think this there might be even an even trippier version of Dune that this is not that that, that would like let itself to more to recreational uh, <laughs> drug use uh, than the one we actually have
3: well sure. n- not not to i am not gonna litigate whether or not this would be good to watch high uh, but, but I, <laughs> because I the say, answer is
0: yes <laughs> I, I, I will say the
3: podcast is pivoting Keith. We're pivoting <laughs> to, to,
0: uh,
2: yeah. legalization is really it's it's opening up a door for us
3: this is yeah, your well, next highest picture show <laughs> <laughs> but but I, I will say there is an entra- it's an entrancing film i yeah. i find i you know narratively i found it kind of swept along uh but mm. but even if the narrative wasn't entirely working i, I think the the uh, the visuals would be and 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 the sort of tone of the film and, and the score the, Han, the Hans the zimmer score, score I think, I think, yeah I love it you know I, I yeah. heard some some grousing about it before I'd heard anything about you know I'd heard a note of the score itself and I actually think it's one of his best his best scores I, it's yeah. it's wonderful no stuff. I, li-
0: I listened to it on the on the way home I was like yes I I want to hear more of this. Tasha, you kind of like raised if there was like stuff that didn't work so well for us or or no, we were talking about sort of the perils of chopping it into two parts like this. And I think that the Zendaya sequences are kind of uh, undercut by being, they're obviously a pre- sort of a preview of what's to come, although I, as I understand it the his visions are not necessarily you know what what will actually happen. It's, 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 he's just seeing possibilities correct.
1: And metaphors, it seems, based on some stuff that actually does happen, it, it seems like he's yeah. he's getting sort of interpretations of things that will happen rather than yeah. literal
0: that character chani like she's a much bigger part in the second part Mm -hmm. of this story i'm assuming right so yeah it is
1: a lot of of carefully paced build-up for something that we mostly don't get in this movie
0: yeah, I've I've seen a lot of like comparisons to the Zendaya scenes as like perfume commercials, <laughs> you know, inter- interspersed throughout, which is is obviously a, a glib way to put it, but I don't want to call it like a fault of the film because I think it's like the way the film is is built, but it is maybe sort of a little bit of a a ding against it as far as the splitting it into two parts.
1: I really do feel like he's doing a lot of thematic and symbolic build up for things that we haven't yet gotten the payoff yet. And if people don't get to see the second part for for two years, like some people are obviously going to rewatch part one immediately beforehand. But, you know, it, it is a little bit like reading a Game of Thrones book and then expecting like when in seven or eight or 10 or never years when the next one comes out, you'll be able to kind of like pick up on on who the characters are and where they are.
2: Yeah, um, though I will say, uh, uh, say in the Lynch film, uh, Sean Young, who plays the Zendaya <laughs> character, in that film just does not show up early in that movie. Uh, and actually, I think the, the the Lynch film, I think there's only like 45 minutes left in the in the Lynch film where this one leaves off. There,
3: <laughs> so, there is a real like, oh crap, we got to finish this story quality. Oh, is to that the, I mean, him? like
2: that's the thing about the Lynch film. It's like it he does all the cool Lynch stuff right away and it's just like oh crap I just can't I can't kind of screw around anymore I actually have to like yeah. squeeze this entire book into the rest of the movie and then the movie just feels incredibly rushed I mean that was that's really the such a chief pleasure of this film for me is just the the clarity and the pace of the storytelling is so Impossible almost, but it works. I mean, just like you just like, okay, that's Dune. Like that's the book I read. And that is, this has been realized with such sharpness and such purposefulness. I just, I was kind of stunned by that. Just, it, it's just a very basic thing. And, and again, it, it's not something I, I do wonder about the why of it. I do wonder about the, the themes of the film and uh, whether I'm going to find on repeat viewings that I, that Villeneuve has a has a specific take on dune like lynch might have had or certainly as jodorowsky would have had um that i'm going to connect to but just the the meat and potatoes of it just the uh, just of the world building and of of the storytelling pretty peerless
1: i want to get into the themes in a second but and we're definitely going to get deep into the themes when we start talking connections because there's a lot there but just in talking about the pace of the movie i have to say my one big gripe with this film is It takes so much time and and space with so much of the story in a way that I think really serves it well, that really gives you a, a sense of the scale and lets you get to know the characters in a meaningful way. And then for some reason, the setup makes it feel like the Atreides are on Arrakis for about 15 minutes before the Harkonnens make their move. And it feels a little weird to me. That part of the movie feels rushed in in the way that the Lynch film felt rushed, and I'm not sure why. It, it seems like we needed, I guess, a little more of a, a gap where the Atreides settled in on the planet, so it wouldn't feel – I mean, yes, obviously, the intrigue here is, is basically, hey, the Emperor set you up – but you know the book is is packed with intrigue and it it stretches out and takes a while and like here we kind of cut straight to the chase. You know it's pretty much a. By the way, this is going to be trouble. Oh wait, nope, it's trouble. It's trouble right now. Yeah. <laughs> there's mm-hmm. not much of a yeah. breather.
0: Yeah, there's no real like anticipation of the the trap being sprung. Like it just springs immediately. <laughs> But
1: but I don't want to weigh that down because there's so much I do love about the movie. But I do I think want to get into it. It sounds like Scott doesn't have an answer for this and is is aware of it. I, for the other two of you, do you have a sense for what Villeneuve finds important here with Arrival? I felt like I understood what he was trying to communicate in terms of the difficulties of communication in terms of the ideas behind language and what makes an alien alien. But here, I feel like he's respecting the, the source material greatly. He's thinking through the visual textures of everything, but I'm not sure I have a, a sense yet for what he f- why he wants to do Dune, what he feels is important about this story or about these people.
3: Well, I think thematically, the fact that it opens with Chani Zendaya's character talking about, basically talking about colonialism, talking about you know imperialism and how her people have suffered under it, I don't think that's insignificant. And I suspect that is, the fact that it's not fleshed out all that much uh, is owing in, in large part to this being part one of an unfinished story. And the second part, we'll get into that. But, you know, I, I do feel like that The opening of this film kind of lays down a marker as to what part one and part two together are are, are one thing that's going to concern them quite a bit.
0: Yeah, and I think maybe sort of an an attendant theme or or, or interest is just the idea of what constitutes power or strength. Timothy Chalamet is a, a very slight person you know you know as a as far as like uh big screen heroes go you know he doesn't come across as an imposing or, or powerful figure and especially when you have him next to like a jason momoa and uh a josh brolin and like just massive uh interstellar firepower, and not just uh paul but the the fremen and you know how they are able to control and navigate this landscape in a way that is like completely different compared to like how the imperium, you know, navigate and, and dominate this landscape. And, um, you know, the limitations of that, I think there's just sort of a, a consideration of sort of like hard power versus soft power, or however you want to delineate that. And I think probably that feeds into maybe ideas about colonialism and imperialism that the film is maybe building toward in the second part.
2: Building toward is a key couple of words, I think, because because this does feel like it's it is setting the table for something for more to come. I mean, I think in terms of like a lot of the, you know, really intense discourse that may happen over this film is going to maybe happen over the second half, not the first in terms of just Paul's immersion into the world of the, the, the Fremen about you know, the, the possibilities, the the darker possibilities that we go along with that journey. I mean, I think those the, that stuff is hinted at here, but maybe something that he'll follow through on uh in a much bigger way in part two.
1: We should talk a little bit about the casting, um, which is both very multi-culty and I think aimed in some way at, at some of these messages about colonialism and imperialism. Um, the Atreides are pretty white people. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, Oscar Isaac is of Guatemalan descent, but he's still pale compared to like the Fremen, for instance, but the Fremen, Fremen aren't like a monoculture Um they're They don't appear to have anything linking them in terms of like skin color or, uh, you know, facial features. They're, they're a wide variety But there are a variety of of specifically people of color, and they contrast pretty sharply with uh, particularly Rebecca Ferguson as as Lady Jessica and just the body of the Bene Gesserit in general, who, from what we see all appear to be extremely pale women who have an extreme amount of power to manipulate, among other things, uh, what the Fremen believe and how they act. There's also a character here who's been gender and race swapped. Liette is given, I think, a kind of a bigger role than in the either the Lynch version or from what I remember of the book. Uh, it's a pretty significant role and she's played by uh sharon duncan brewster in this version of the movie so there's certainly a lot of thought and attention being given to kind of the racial composition here what did you what did you guys think of the casting either on that basis or just in terms of like there's some very familiar faces here in these in these roles
2: i I think the casting up and down is pretty great i mean i you know that was uh you know again an experience of reading the book and then not really knowing other anyone other than Chalamet being in the movie, just kind of looking at Wikipedia to see who, who they cast at all the roles and being like, wow, that is, that seems about right for just about every single one. And even Chalamet, who seems who, who may, if you, you know, seem like a kind of an odd build, I guess, mm-hmm. for someone to be a hero is very much, I think in keeping with Herbert's description of who Paul is, is yeah. being this sort of live, introspective kid, really. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, who's also uncanny in a way that Timothy Chalamet can project, really, really well. So I thought that that's well cast. And they're just, there's a lot of just flavorful performances in in, in this too, uh, Javier Berndam being yeah. one of them. Uh, I think Charlotte Rampling's one scene as the Reverend Mother is just phenomenal. So uh, yeah, I think it's up and down, r- really well cast.
3: I like the Charlemagne casting a lot. I, I you know, you, you're, you're looking for for Harry Potter, not Arnold Schwarzenegger, with with, with this mm-hmm. character. You know, someone who's kind of somewhat unlikely, but as you say, charismatic and in, in some interesting ways.
0: Yeah, I, I when I said that he, you know, doesn't necessarily look like someone that you would consider to be in this role. Like, I, I understand that that. I say that understanding that like this is what Paul as a character is. I just mean in terms of like someone who is destined to save the universe. Although I guess like maybe the Harry Potter comparison also, also works there. <laughs> but it makes it fun with
2: Jason Momoa
0: though, right? I was just going to gonna some... bring up Jason yeah. Momoa because yep. I think he and Javier Bardem, who who you mentioned, Scott, are maybe the only sources of humor in, uh, in, yes. in this film yeah like maybe Josh Brolin has a laugh line but but for the most part like Jason Momoa I think is like sort of like the charismatic center um, and I, as I understand it Duncan Idaho is sort of uh, maybe a bit of a fan favorite character uh, as well so I really like Jason Momoa I'm kind of just a sucker for him in, in general although I did have a little uh, uh, did take me a minute to get past him not having a beard uh, here Uh, He he has a surprisingly baby face (laughs) under that very distinctive beard of his. So, um, but yeah, I really enjoyed uh, that character and that performance, uh, as well as Javier Bardem, who, uh, you know, appears sort of early in the film. And there, I think, is where he kind of gets his, like, laugh moments uh, when he is uh, inter- interacting with uh, Oscar Isaac's character and spitting at him and whatnot. You know, when he reappears later in the film, I think he is, uh, you know, a much more sort of forceful presence. But it he, it works both ways because he's Javier Bardem.
1: Yeah, I think Jason Momoa kind of has the corner on like warm charisma in this movie, there's mm-hmm. a, a ton of cold charisma, but he's. <laughs> it, it's interesting to me that they they make time for him repeatedly hugging people in this movie, yeah. and <laughs> you know, in a movie that where almost everybody seems to be about like standoffish uh, dignity, he drops dignity in favor of of warmth. And he's just he's great. He's a uh, he's a standout. I think it's great, great casting. But I also really appreciate Dave Bautista as uh, the Beast Bon, who I hope we get more of in the second film, because, you know, you you don't cast Dave Bautista to be in the background anymore. Like he's he is a leading man these days, and he's got a lot of presence for a role that hasn't really asserted itself yet. So I'm, I'm hoping that we get part two and that we get more of him because it, it feels like he could really bring something to, again, a, a role that didn't necessarily entirely get its due in the, the previous version.
2: This is quite a time for charismatic, beefy guys <laughs> in the There's like so many of them now. <laughs> the, the John Cena and The Rock and everybody, they're all beefy and fun.
1: I thought Rebecca Ferguson made interesting choices as Lady Jessica. I'm not sure that I love how weepy she is uh, as kind of the the lead female in this. She is definitely a much more vulnerable interpretation of that character. And it does kind of make her more accessible. It drives empathy, but it also makes her seem like kind of the weak link in a, a long chain of very hard people who need to be very hard to survive. And, you know, it doesn't it's not that she lacks hardness and it's not that she doesn't get uh, action scenes or, or get to agency or get to do her own thing. But, you know, she is she is much more vulnerable out there in the open emotionally than anybody else in this film. Uh, and it I don't know, maybe itched at me a little bit.
2: I think that will change, though. I think the, her, the arc of that character is someone who I recall from the the, the book her being absolutely just. Horrified by you know the Reverend Mother coming and him having to put his hand in the <laughs> in the box or whatever, and and her being extremely emotional about that moment, but then also her having to follow an agenda that is separate from Paul's ultimately. You know that that she's not going to be completely, you know that they're, they're gonna there's going to be an you know an inevitable estrangement there and and some colder choices that she's going to have to make later. So maybe maybe I'm guessing that when this thing is completed, that maybe we might see that performance slightly differently.
1: You know, that's a possibility. And it just like it leads me into all sorts of things I want to talk about in terms of things that might happen or might be brought to light. I Mm -hmm. don't I don't think it's maybe the wisest move to start spoiling a movie, maybe a a literal year or two before it's made, let alone released. So uh, we'll just we'll close out with this. Scott, if they just don't greenlight part two, are you going to
2: explode? Yeah, I will. I will. I'm already. I'm already preparing my my uh, to be a internet troll on a on a release the Snyder cut level <laughs> scale. Uh, so yeah, I, it would break me if this if I if part two did not get made. I would be very upset.
3: But what if it comes uh, out, I, out I, and be- it's it's like it part two and everything you liked about the first one is kind of retroactively uh, uh, spoiled. <laughs>
2: uh, yeah, I have more faith
1: faith in Denis Villeneuve than, than I do. Than that, I, I, I do
2: as well. Now, I, 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 the film filled me with confidence that, that he knew what he was doing. So fingers crossed on that.
1: Well, there's honestly a ton more to talk about, but I think a lot of it is going to come out when we start looking at the connections between Dune and Lawrence of Arabia. So we'll be right back after this break to do exactly that.
2: They were pointing at us.
3: are they shouting?
2: Listen, al okay voice from the outer world it's their name for messiah that means the benedict have been at work here Planting superstitions preparing
1: the way Paul
2: these people have waited for centuries for the Lizan al-Ghaib they see you they see the signs
3: they see what they've been told to see
0: Good to
1: go. So now it's time for connections when we bring these two films together and talk about everything they have in common. Where do we even want to start?
0: (laughs) I feel like like it's a very long list in front of us. It's a very long list.
1: It's not a list we're necessarily going to hit everything of. I feel like we can't jump into this discussion without talking a little bit about the white savior motif in both of these movies. Like, you do fundamentally in Dune have a group of outcasts who live in the desert, who are modeled after Arab tribes, who are modeled after the groups seen in Lawrence of Arabia. And this very pale, very young person who has been set up for decades, if not centuries, it's unclear how far back the plan reaches, but has been set up as a messiah figure. The The Fremen have literally been conditioned over time, sociologically brainwashed into seeing everything he says and does as a sign that he is the Messiah. So you have this, you know, very young, very uh, skinny, very untried youth who's suddenly you know, going to be lording it over people who are much more experienced, uh, especially in the, the realm and the type of fighting that they do, and who have this unstoppable fighting force. You have the same thing in, in Lawrence of Arabia, where this man who's untested in the ways of the desert comes out to it and just immediately starts saying, well, I'm going to do it the way you do it, and immediately impresses everybody. He's a little bit of a Mary Sue. Uh, he he, yeah. kind of he kind of rolls in, and everybody like bristles at first, and then falls in love with him. And both of them are kind of destined to like lead these these people out of what's kind of portrayed as a more backwards way of life into like a, a larger world. By which both of these movies kind of mean the larger world of like white people and their white people politics. How do we navigate
3: these things in both of these movies?
1: With difficulty. <laughs> <laughs> with difficulty and discomfort to some degree, I
3: think. <laughs> so, I mean, with Dune, I think we're talking a little bit about part two, which we yes. can't really do. But I feel like with both of these, they're not unquestioning. I, I, I think the, the as sort of exemplary a white savior narrative as Lawrence of Aferria is in many ways, it's also... Already, I think questions about it are kind of kind of baked into the narrative of it as well, and I think Dune expands on that as well. Although, again, we're mostly talking about things we can't quite talk about yet.
0: And with Lawrence of Arabia, I do come have to come back again to that that scene of him in the robes and just the robes in general. You know, these voluminous white robes that he is bestowed as a you know a sign of of acceptance, but are also very messianic, you know, visually speaking. But also, you know, they don't really... Quite fit him, you know. When he gets those those robes, he's immediately come upon by this Arab who who's like, "What what the hell is going on? Like, what <laughs> what do you think you're doing?" One of my like favorite just little details, uh, like visual details in Lawrence of Arabia that kind of uh, fits under this heading is, you know, the first time we see him in the desert, the first time we see him on a camel. I think Keith noted how he's like seems like very little boy and happy about it. I was very focused on the fact that he has like his shirt sleeves rolled up and his forearms exposed to the desert, his pale forearms exposed to the desert sun, which is just like, it feels like such a symbol of how un- unfit he is for this, this environment. But, you know, I think to the actual question about, you know, how the films engage with white saviorism, I think as Keith says, Lawrence for Arabia is not ignoring it. It is not also not necessarily like, trying to deliver a verdict or, you know, I think it just sees it as part of the complicated fabric of T.E. Lawrence and the band. And it is maybe like couching it more in the idea of like a Messiah complex than like a racial one specifically, because obviously this is a film that has white actors playing brown characters, you know, like it, it is maybe not thinking in those terms but I think that you can draw a pretty straight line between the, you know, the white savior figure and the messiah figure who is in a situation where he is the only white person.
2: Yeah, I mean, I guess one thing I would say, and again, we're, we're talking about the second part of, of Dune a, l- a little bit, but I think we can hint at the fact that, that in both films, things don't quite go quite as planned. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, it, I don't think we, we, I don't even necessarily think of them as white saviors it, it, without it being extremely complicated complicated uh by what actually happens <laughs> and by mm-hmm. the result of the, of their actions and by the result of their immersion into a culture that is not their own you know i mean the, the, these two films track on that front so closely together you know that again you 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 kind of regret that you're not seeing the full dune here yet but you know at least it's complicated in that way at least it's not just about paul or lawrence coming and you know, being being the great leader that lifts this outside this culture outside to him up, you know, that lifts them from oppression. Um, it's a lot more complicated than that. You know, it's part of what makes you know Lawrence Arabia, a, you know, a, a great and, and rich film.
1: I think one of the big complications there is just the degree to which both of these movies make the culture that the white savior is supposedly uplifting the uh, benighted nomads into. Uh, look pretty repulsive, you know the British snobbery in Lawrence of Arabia, their outright racism, their colonialism and uh, paternalism all stands out pretty sharply. And the way they treat Lawrence and look down on him, and don't like him when he's trying to fit in, and hate him even more when he's not trying to fit in—like all of that—is a pretty severe judgment against the culture he comes from. And in the same sort of way, the Imperium certainly does not model behavior that the Fremen are supposed to imitate in any way or aspire to. So there's definitely like less of a sense here. Uh, I don't know. I just got out of a, a period of reading like this gigantic compilation of Rudyard Kipling stories. And one of the things that I just struggled with over and over is that as interesting and good of a storyteller he is, that whole era in in British thought was just so ingrained uh, with colonialist racism. And just the assumption that like, of course the British way is, is modern and civilized and all other ways are backwards and and dumb and everybody has to be fixed. And I can see Lawrence edging up to that and then just kind of saying, like, no, no these people are terrible. Why would you want to be like them? It almost feels like one of the reasons Lawrence is stuck between the two worlds is that he can see the, the deep-seated faults of both worlds, and he kind of recoils from both of them. He he lives in a, a bit of a, a plane of purity and idealism where he wants everybody to operate in a certain way that literally nobody operates in, including often himself when he doesn't live up to his own expectations.
0: Yeah, I think if we're talking about this, we have to uh, bring in the end of Lawrence of Arabia and what happens in in Damascus and the Arab Council, you know, and the British sort of leaving them to figure this shit out. And like, it's definitely indicated that the British assume this is going to happen, that, that this tribal infighting is going to result in all of this falling apart and they just kind of like sit back and let it happen and then you get that scene where we see all the dead in Damascus and then the British like kind of, sort of like see this is what happens when savages fight or something you know it's it's all like you said tasha paternalistic and like the attitudes carried into the the resolution of this battle I think are they're gross <laughs> you, you know uh they're, they're they're certainly of the era i think part of the thing that we get end up
1: getting in both of these movies out of that problematic dynamic where you know our our putative white savior is trying to lead people in a direction that maybe they know is not the best direction to lead people in is that both of these movies end up playing pretty strongly with the the reluctant messiah trope uh both of these characters take up the banner of leadership in in certain ways, but both of them have second thoughts about it. And we don't get to see how Paul's fully plays out. We just see his his deep-seated crisis in the tent where he realizes the degree to which his life has been planned and programmed and the degree to which his breeding has made him into something apart from what he thinks of as as normal human life. With Lawrence, we see him go back and forth and back and forth in like, I don't want to do this anymore. I have to continue doing this uh, kind of mode. But both of them, both of these stories, you know, give our heroes feet of clay and, and give them almost like panic responses to the level of responsibility that they're being asked to take on and the level of faith other people have in them. Both of them have moments where they just don't want that responsibility. And, and feel themselves unequal to the task. And it's, uh, it's just a, an interesting comparison in both cases. I don't know, compared to the uh, stoic and emotionless heroes that I'm so tired of in other movies.
0: Again, I have to come back to Dawood and Farage, the the orphans, and how Lawrence like initially is like, no, I don't need servants. I can't afford servants. Like he doesn't see himself as a great man who you know needs. I, I think slaves is actually what they call them, not not servants. But you know he has to like basically be convinced, and it has to be presented to him in a. Context of saving these poor orphans, you know, as we discussed in the in the first half, you know that the way that that plays out for him uh, is certainly rich and complicated and tragic.
3: You bring up Don Farage and and, and the, the kind of key characters in a way, in a sense that, that they they initially benefit from from Lawrence and and his his arrival and and the uh, uh and in British aid in general. And then ultimately uh it brings about both their deaths in and in fairly horrific fashions for both of them. Uh there, there is a theme in both of these where where outsiders coming in are uh, disruptive uh, and, and and unwelcomed, but it, then it gets complicated. But you know, I, I I think sort of the ugliness we talked about in terms of the the British culture here is is you know one thing you can do with science fiction, of course, is is r- run with these things. And and I th- the the Harconans and and uh, not not so much the Atreides. That, that's they're, they're more of like sort of a um, you know there's nothing quite so ugly about them so much as as there's fearfulness about their arrival. But but the Harconans are harkening to use the uh, uh, (laughs) Villeneuve pronunciation, are uh, uh, unreservedly ugly in in ways that kind of uh, give a a perhaps appropriate face to to colonialism.
1: Yeah, these are both very the battle against colonialism narratives. And I think they're both ultimately, as a result, kind of stories about somebody coming out of a a corrupt old society, having a vision of a, a less corrupt new society you know Lawrence's big ideal is uh, like Arab rule uh for Arab rule like Arab ba- basically Arab rule for Arabs uh, mm-hmm. and the idea that like all of these fractious tribes could bond together into this new society which he tries to create in an image that he's he's seen for himself and it it just doesn't work out you know the the society that he wants is not the culture that they live by and sort of one man's dream can't really, I'm I'm having Tucker, a man in his dream flashbacks now, but like one (laughs) one man's dream can't reshape thousands of years of, of culture overnight. And he seems almost hurt when that doesn't work out. And in the same sort of way, again, we're we're not getting to where Dune goes, and Part Two may complicate this. But what we have, at least, is the ideal of: here's the old society that uh, abused and enslaved you and and killed you for no reason. Here's our new society that we're trying to forge, where you're respected and honored individuals uh, who are allowed your own freedom and your your own self governance. Like both of these stories are about heroes who have an ideal. Uh, and the ideal is expressly, here's where I came from. I don't like it. Let's do better in the new world.
2: I think there's something to be said to Lawrence of Arabia about where power actually lies, you know, because so much of the film takes place in the desert, but the real decisions, you know, and I think Prince Faisal is involved in this too, uh, are made on uh, by around desks, <laughs> you know, still that for all of the toil and death and, and effort um, that it's taken to try to you know reshape the world that, that ultimately these are decisions and deals that are struck around a desk and so those kind of, so that the order of the already powerful is kind of restored they kind of close rank together you know and I think there's and I think in in dune there's kind of a suspicion an interesting suspicion that Stilgar the Harvey, Javier Bardem character and leader of the Fremen uh, brings to, you know, the scene with Duke Leto um, yeah. where where he's not, you know, Duke Leto uh, wants to work in, in concert against, you know, what we certainly know are, are grosser, uglier forms of evil. But it's not like, you know, it means the, the House of Trades is still part of that imperium. You know, and mining spice is still important. You know, and that that, that's not necessarily the agenda that ultimately the Fremen are going to be into either.
1: If Dune was a very different story than it is, that confrontation with Stilgar coming in to meet the Atreides, I just kept thinking about like other stories we've seen about you know particularly in in the West, the government perpetually making deals with the natives, uh, and then going back on them the second they wanted some land or they found a resource, and that whole meetup, like you can feel Stilgar's contempt for the whole process. And it's, Mm -hmm. it's impossible to blame him for it, you know, because you, you know, full well, if he said, well, what we want is uh, for you to never enter this area of land. And then they found out that that's the richest place to mine spice, like that treaty would go out the window in no time. There's no reason for him to have respect for a process that he's seen historically has no respect for him. Right. And you, you kind of get the same deal with the Arabs around the table at the, the end of Lawrence. It's like, why would we participate the, in this when it's not giving us what we want or what we need when it's just a, an endless frustration?
0: Well, you know, we've gotten uh, about an hour into this conversation and, you know, we've definitely <laughs> alluded to maybe the biggest connection between these two films. But I don't think we've actually dug into, uh, hey, these both take place in a desert, (laughs) you know, which is uh, a very... uh, Whoa, 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 whoa. You're you're right. Yeah, Keith
1: Keith had not seen that up until now. It is a little obscure when you think about it.
0: But, you know, the uh, the the desert is a very uh, evocative landscape, both visually and thematically. You know, it's uh, kind of a counterpoint to the sea, which we uh, talked about in feedback in, in part one, too, is having this sort of like mysterious, lethal power that, you know, and in Dune in particular, I, I feel like the the sandworms kind of make the whole idea of the, the desert as sea even more explicit. But I think maybe we we just can start with the the visual aspect of the desert in, in both of these films. I uh, I brought up in the first half, Lawrence of Arabia's signature shot of just the flat, empty landscape with a tiny figure on uh, on the horizon, and it the film certainly leans into the the wide open, clean, empty aridness of it dunes desert i feel is like maybe a little more active <laughs> you know obviously you have the the sandworms mm-hmm. but also you know you have you have dunes <laughs> and, and you know it's just and it, part of it is the way it's films too it's just a lot more of a i, I don't want to necessarily say it's more dynamic because obviously lawrence verivia is a, is very dynamic visually but the the desert in dune i think it, it just feels like it has more a little more life to it as it were
1: well, there are different deserts in Lawrence of Arabia, and that's that's one of the fascinating things, because we do start out with desert scenes in, in Lawrence that have dunes, uh, because right. I, I found myself just thinking this this isn't an effect, this is a real place, this is this is what parts of the desert look like this is a place that I'm never going to be physically that I'm I'm just looking at right now with my own eyes so it's just you know one of those things that you maybe forget about cinema and then rediscover a thousand times over but when they head out into God's anvil and it's it's just white and flat as far as the eye can see and there's literally nothing there the the fa- the fact that they travel there and then they come to a place that's like, sand and a few small rocks and a few small like grayish bushes and it looks like the lushest place imaginable after where they've been it's like oh oh thank goodness they're out of the desert and into this place that's just made out of sand and rocks <laughs> you know both of these uh movies very definitely focused on on vistas on like vast intimidating lands that dwarf humanity and could swallow humanity without a trace and without a hope as metaphor and symbol, um, but also just as like overwhelmingly kind of powerful and beautiful images. I
2: mean, if you're looking for kind of a connection here, a or, or, or Villeneuve signature, it's landscapes. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, it, one, one thing that you do notice in, in so many of the films that he's made is he loves to establish the topography of a place. He loves... Yeah these really big incredible like overhead shots of like you think of like the borderlands of sicario or or you know the you know this kind of like
0: Blade Runners Darks does it. Blade Runner 2049 oh, has a whole desert. And that's all, that's yeah. like,
2: like, that's like all that film. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> you know, even a film like Prisoners, which is not set in, in a desolate landscape, but is set, you know, in a, in a, um, you know, middle-class community has a kind of a dark grandeur that is sort of brought out in wide shot. And so this is something, this is kind of his mode of making movies. And, and so it kind of give, makes him, you know, ideal to do, to make Dune and to give, The world of Arrakis, uh, you know, a texture to it that is both exotic and dangerous at the same time and imposing, but also kind of home to people, (laughs) the people, there are actually people who do live there and consider it home. (laughs) So, you know, there's a, there's a purpose behind, you know, the visuals there. And I think, and I think there's a lot, you know, I'd, I'd be interested to see if someone do some kind of visual essay about, you know, that particular impulse on Villeneuve's part to give you that wide kind of overhead shot of of the landscape and him finding that to be an important kind of establishing piece of the the worlds that he, you know, ends up exploring.
1: I do think it's interesting that in both cases, like what you're talking about in terms of the, the imposingness of the desert in both of these films, like the Fremen and the Bedouin are both characterized very similarly in that. They're capable of surviving in this environment and being comfortable in it and calling it home like they've mm-hmm. they've adapted to live in the place that's unlivable and in both cases, you're kind of told uh, these are are tough badass warriors who move astonishingly quickly in places where most people can't survive. you know they're capable and experienced and dangerous, but you almost don't need to be told that you know these are people who are capable of surviving in in this and we're just going to spend a, t- a lot of time looking at this and imagining what it would be like to live there. Just the fact that they're not only still alive but thriving says so much about you know both of them as, as groups.
2: And when it also says on the, the reverse of that, for colonialists, it's like these are just, you know, shitholes, basically. <laughs> you know, these are horrible places, you know, godforsaken places that they would have absolutely nothing to do with if there wasn't something they could just, like, take from the earth you know they can just grab from it that they can claim to be theirs you know so it is a, a really interesting contrast between between those two things and, yeah. that, and that kind of you know, go ahead
3: well just a little point of comparison between another connection between the two of them is the sort of space that the, the colonizers carve out whether it's the the palace that the atreides live in or the uh, um the the very exclusive officers club that that you know you, you have to be you cannot not even all white people are involved are, are allowed to come inside you have to be an officer as well
0: and they plant palm trees, right? Or were the palm trees already there in Dune? I,
2: the palm yeah. trees are there. They, okay. But they get watered. And, the water, and that's a kind of a controversial thing to do on a planet where water is extremely hard to come by.
0: Yeah.
2: It's an indulgence to have these palm trees in front. Yeah.
0: But they look um, so cool when they go up in flames.
1: And they so do. symbolically loaded when they go up in yes. flames. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like even the Harkonnens, like respected the sacredness of these palm trees, which is really saying something given the Harkonnens, but uh, you know, uh, this, this war spares no palm trees. No children, no families, no palm trees. I guess, uh, just in general, we should talk about the, the scope of these movies and the, the difference between making an epic back then, which necessarily involved, you no, know, we're going to troop out to the desert and live there for a year. We're going to assemble a thousand horse riders and, and camel riders and put them out on the field and have them like run into the city. We have to physically do most of the things that you're seeing on screen versus, I don't, Know if you saw, I think it was uh, Guillermo Guillermo del Toro uh, interviewed Villeneuve and was talking about just the scope of some of the stuff and like asking how you shot it. (laughs) It was specifically asking like how the hell he shot the sandworm and got that effect. And and Villeneuve was like, I I hate to tell you this, but it's all digital, it's all special effects. Mm -hmm. And, And Del Toro was sounded kind
2: of Floored,
1: but but so much. Well, what, of what did, he th-
0: what did he think? I don't what, know. I, mean... I don't know.
1: I,
2: would, I, that would be that would be the largest figure in human history.
0: I, I assume he was thinking saw models,
1: maybe miniatures. Like yeah. I could I could see getting that effect. Like the sandworms in Lynch's Dune are I think really quite impressive. But maybe he was just thinking in terms of uh, a smaller version of that, as opposed to an entirely entirely special effects driven one. Uh, But in both of these movies, you know, you get that, that sense of distance and scope and, and weight. You just get it through very, very different means.
0: Yeah, one of the places I get it in uh, Lawrence of Arabia that I don't think we've talked much about yet is just the animals, <laughs> like specifically the camels and also the horses. You know, like there are just a lot of live animals <laughs> in this film. And like camels are cool, man. Like I never really like paid enough attention to camels before for this this movie. But like they're just like very interesting on screen presences. And I'm also thinking of uh, one of the train scenes where all the horses like leap off and like that wasn't digital, you know, like that really happened and, uh, you know, I do wonder how how safely it happened for all the animals. I did a little light Googling to see if there was any uh, sort of harm to animals uh, associated with this film and I couldn't find anything too notorious, but you know, it feels like You know, it probably could have happened and no one, you know, really thought much about it at at that point in time. But, um, you know, it wasn't necessarily an error where they were tracking such things. Right.
2: I mean, the the tools with which you can suggest bigness, uh, you know, in epicness, it, 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 of course, have changed quite su- substantially between Lawrence of Arabia and Dune. And with Dune, I think you get, I mean, with Lawrence of Arabia, of course, you've got the large format, you've got the real locations, you have real stuff happening in front of the camera, real extras. You know, it's just the scale of that production is is very huge and, but, and very practical in a way. Uh, you don't need to do that or you necessarily want to do that for something like Dune, but some of the things that, that Villeneuve does here are done through sound. Uh, you know, uh, it's so much of the bigness of Dune. I mean, if, apart from the effects, which really give you like the ornithopters and stuff. I mean, that stuff is really cool. I mean, and the structures are really cool, and they're just larger than you could ever conceive. But then, but just the the, the way sound reinforces all of that. That the just the bone rattling soundtrack before you even get to the Hans Zimmer score kind of just makes everything that's already large seem that much more imposing and also kind of gives a weight in a way to effects you know because that's the big problem with effects uh, too much too many computer effects is that it's like this is this is all plastic this is any this doesn't have any feel gritty at all you know what I mean like I mean dune could p- potentially be a film that where the desert doesn't feel textured in any way it, it, it feels completely like something that that's come on a that you know that's like you know, built on a computer and it doesn't have that. It has, it has real weight to it.
1: I agree that it has real weight. And I I agree that it's really well done in terms of like, I did actually kind of feel the weight of uh, when the, the ships are exploding on the the launch pad, when you're watching these vast transport ships go up in flames before the crews can even get to them. You, f- you feel the size and, and weight of that loss and, and kind of the heat of the flames Where I kind of lose the sense of uh, Epic Scope with something like Dune is in the crowds of people, because it's so easy compared to some other things they do in special effects. I don't want to be one of these people that are like, oh, there's a computer button you press that does that. but. It's comparatively easy and has been done for a comparatively long time now to just kind of clone stamp armies. So when you have things like the the vast Atreides army all standing behind the Duke waiting for the announcement from the Herald or the Sadikar army kneeling in the rain or what have you, my mind no longer goes to, uh, oh, my gosh, this is so epic. Like they, they got a thousand people for this. It just kind of goes to a place of, huh, I wonder if that's three guys or four, <laughs> you know, before they before they started playing with the digital effects. But then you see an equivalent crowd in Lawrence of Arabia, and there's just a sense of, oh, my God, <laughs> so, so many costumes, so many camels, uh, so much wrangling.
2: So many people, like, extremely well paid for their services. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs>
1: let's let's not even think about that, let alone uh, how many of those horses broke legs.
3: Before we leave really the <laughs> subject of camels, O'Toole has a really funny line uh, in, in interviews where he talks about how uh, no one really rides a camel. You just kind of get on a camel and hope it goes where <laughs> you want it to go. Also, apparently, those were wood saddles on the camels. Oh, yeah. They looked uh, incredibly rough. uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> just, yeah. It's just... It's two
1: poles, and you sit in between them and try not to fall off. But uh, yeah, there is... Uh, to to circle back briefly to camels are cool, there is that scene where I can't remember if it's Dowd or Farage who... Like waits on the edge of the desert, just watching for Lawrence to reappear. And when he does, uh, whichever one of them it is, starts running the camel toward them. And you get, you know, just twenty uncut David Lean mo- minutes of <laughs> watching every pace that a camel has, which is interesting if you've ever if you've ever seen like the the Moybridge uh, photos of how a horse runs. It's a very different gait, depending on whether it's like a trot or a gallop or a a walk or what have you. Like the legs do different things. Seeing that same thing in a camel as it goes through (laughs) each of its separate paces, like seeing how those weird knobby stick legs move across the desert is just surreal. And I can't help but feel that Lean spent so much time with that just because it's kind of incredible to watch a camel run. And to watch somebody trying to hang on to it while it runs.
3: Kind of like a sandworm, right?
1: <laughs> I don't think it's fun to watch a sandworm gallop. I don't, I don't <laughs> okay. think that's that's I think that's why David Lean didn't spend any time on sandworm galloping. Well, we really need to uh, wrap this up and move on. I will just say briefly, without uh, diving deep into it, that uh, both of these movies put a lot of emphasis on the first kill uh, mm-hmm. a young man has. The, the first time that he has to commit murder uh, for what he believes in.
0: And the the fear that he's going to develop a, a taste for it. Uh, I mean, we don't- I think Paul will probably be fine, right? That won't play into part two at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not like it was a climactic part of the movie or anything, right? Just, yeah, fine
1: with it. it's certainly not like he's been uh, just dreaming obsessively and incessantly about knives and, and blood I, I don't think it's ever going to come up again I think we're pretty much done with it much as with uh, in, in Lawrence he worries that you know he's becoming a nerd to violence and then there's no violence for the rest of the film and it's all just fine <laughs> so just just another way these two movies are alike uh, in the way that they just kind of gloss over that theme and never return to it again <laughs> Uh, If you want to return to these movies again, Lawrence of Arabia is on DVD and Blu-ray. It's widely streaming on rental services and on-demand cable services. It's a big classic. It's pretty easy to find real cheap in whatever format you want. Dune is in theaters and on HBO Max. Uh, Frankly, I'm going to say if you're watching this one at home, you're missing out on a lot of the reason to see it. We'll be right back with your next picture show. it's time for your next picture show, which we're retooling a bit given how much the film and TV worlds have been bleeding into each other lately. We're watching films at home alongside our TV. We're watching TV that feels like film. And we're watching TV by filmmakers and films by TV figures. So we're just going to ask everybody, what would you recommend watching right now?
0: Genevieve? Oh well, look. I'm going to recommend a TV show, but one uh, produced by a uh, executive produced by a uh, director we have spoken about on this uh, uh, podcast before. And for what it's worth, you know, all eight episodes laid end to end is about the same runtime as Lawrence of Arabia. (laughs) Um, I'm speaking of season one of the FX series Reservation Dogs, which recently wrapped. It's it's eight uh, 22 minute episodes. Uh, But despite that little uh, factoid about it being as long as Lawrence of Arabia. Like this is this is not a movie in eight parts. This is a TV show. This is episodic television. One of the things I really love about this uh, show and this season is its structure. Uh, if you don't know uh, Reservation Dogs, it's a comedy series created by Taika Watiti alongside Sterling Harjo. It's all basically an all Indigenous production. It has like the largest. Uh, indigenous writers room in, in history and all indigenous cast it takes place you know on a reservation in oklahoma and it stars four really great young indigenous actors as the four central friends in the story and like it starts out in its first few episodes is almost sort of just like a hangout comedy uh you know it's it's, it's very low-key you kind of like bop around the reservation with these uh four friends as they are basically trying to get money together to leave for california and that's sort of like the table setting but then as it progresses you get like episodes that focus on each of the four and they all kind of tie into the larger arc of the season but you know that you get these four different character showcases and then it comes together in a really i think elegant way at the end so just as like episodic television it's it's really well done it's a just like sort of a, a vibey show um the it's got so many like great colorful supporting characters i really loved <laughs> res- reservation dogs and um you know i won't tell you too much more about it because I think it's a show that's definitely, you know, better experienced than told about. So I would definitely recommend it's on uh, FX on Hulu. So if you have Hulu, you can uh, watch it all there. And it has already been uh, greenlit for a second season. So um, I'm really excited to see it uh, come back for more. So uh, yeah, Reservation Dogs.
1: I have been so excited to dig into that. I've heard such good things about it. And I I love Taika Waititi's stories and just the places that he chooses to tell stories, which this just seems to fit into so well. Mm-hmm. Uh, Genevieve, I had seen the news about it being renewed for season two. Like, Do you feel that the first season tells a complete story or does it tease its way into there's more of the story to come in season two?
0: Um, I mean, it definitely tells a complete story in terms of, like, the f- friendship of these characters, and I don't want to, like... There's there's sort of a central event that is defining their their friendship that I don't really want want to get into, but it kind of like brings resolution to that event in the in the first season, but there, it also breaks open the quartet in a way that opens the door for a second season and sort of a new a new story, you know, because obviously we can't. I don't think they're going to just like repeat the arc of the first season. And just again, like the four young leads are all so good and fun to watch. So um, that alone, I think would be reason enough to come back for a season two.
2: I've heard nothing but great things about that show. Yeah. Same.
0: Um, if you, if you could watch Lawrence of Arabia, you can watch Reservation Dogs. <laughs> Tasha, what about you?
1: Huh? Well, do, does Reservation Dogs have a built-in intermission, though, is the important thing?
0: <laughs> yes, it has seven of them in between each episode. <laughs> oh, that's convenient.
3: <laughs> you can wait, like, a whole week before we're watching the next one if you want to. <laughs> Television's funny that way. Sorry.
1: Well, speaking of things that have uh, built-in... Um, the intermissions between episodes. The thing that I was going to recommend is it's called Maya and the Three. It As we're uh, recording this, it's about to debut on Netflix. It'll be out by the time people listen to this. It is a, a complete nine episode series. The episodes run about half an hour from Jorge R. Gutierrez, who is the uh, director creator of the movie uh, The Book of Life. If people remember that animated film. It was uh, just a really distinctive and unusual animated movie back in 2014. And I want to say three years ago at this point, I went on a tour of Netflix's headquarters in LA, and he was hard at work on this series. And it was was one of the most exciting things I saw while I was there. They had just these character breakdowns and world breakdowns covering the walls, and I, I was drooling for it to come out. And then just years of silence went by. Uh, And I'd I'd started to think that it had uh, been entirely scrapped. But once it, once it hit, once I first had the opportunity to see it, uh, it became clear why it, it took so long. So this is about a four and a half hour story, but it's one big continuous story. It feels like a long movie. And Takes up some of the themes of, of Book of Life, some of the feeling of, of Book of Life. This is a movie that kind of mashes together, uh, Mesoamerican myth, uh, Incan, Mayan, uh, Aztec, like all, all together into this great big gigantic fable about a girl who believes that her family has been prophesied to fight and defeat the, the gods of the underworld, the, the dark gods. This is a very, supernaturally tinged world full of uh, mayhem and adventure and, and magic. And when things don't don't exactly work out the way she was expecting for the prophecy, she has to go on this epic quest and create a, a group uh, built up of uh, outsiders who aren't what she expects. And, you know, it's kind of a kid's story. It's, it follows kind of like big familiar patterns. But this movie, it's it's CG animation that really brought home to me like how much we've come to expect CG animation to look like a certain thing in the same way animation in America, in particular, from like roughly the, the 50s through the 80s, all kind of tried to follow the, the Disney pattern. It was expected that that movies animated movies would look a certain way. Because you're kind of trying to chase the Disney movie money and maybe delude people into thinking you were a Disney movie in the same kind of way for a long time now. CG animation has, has all kind of adopted the same visual models. Like the details will vary, but there's just a certain quality of product uh, that you see over and over. Maya and the Three is is very heavily inflected around Mesoamerican culture, Mesoamerican fashion, Mesoamerican art and culture, and it just does not look like anything else out there. For somebody trained on American animation, it may kind of take a while for your eyes to adjust. But uh, I love the characters. I love the story. It goes to a place that's really unexpected for people used to American animation stories in particular. It's got a pretty amazing cast. Uh, Zoe Saldana, Danny Trejo, Rita Moreno, Gal Garcia Bernal, Queen Latifah, Alfred Molino, Diego Luna, Rosie Perez, uh, just on and on and on. There are a bunch more. I don't want to read the IMDB to you but it's a huge celebration of uh, like Mexican Spanish heritage uh, as a as a whole and Mesoamerican culture and and history like all kind of wrapped up into this one very accessible like fun interesting really kind of weird story so I've been waiting quite a while for this, and uh, it did not disappoint me. It surprised me a lot. It definitely skews toward the young side of things, um, but it's both good to watch with your kids and just fun, I think, for animation fans. So that's Maya and the Three on Netflix. Uh, it should be all available now. I really don't think there's going to be a second season because of where the story goes, but uh, you know, uh, who knows? Scott, what about you?
2: what uh i'm just wondering if we're a movie podcast anymore what's all the tv
1: (laughs) what even is movies what even is tv what even is time
2: okay so well in that spirit i I will say you know just sit right back and you'll hear a tale (laughs) a tale of a fateful trip (laughs) <laughs> to Bergman Island. What? I'm going to rock on Bergman Island. You thought, you thought I, I have a whole song. I actually we, did we, write out a whole We verse. specifically
0: scrapped a Bergman Island pairing just so Scott wouldn't do that song.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I found a I found a workaround. I found He's a workaround. He's
1: irrepressible. There's no repressing him.
2: No repressing. Um so yeah, so I wanted to talk about Mia hansen loves new film called uh Bergman Island, which is quite lovely. It stars uh, Tim Roth and Vicky Creeps, who you, who you know from uh, *Phantom Thread* as filmmakers who are a couple, uh, much like the filmmakers Mia hansen love and Olivier Assayas, uh, who go to Faro, which is an uh, which is the island. It's called Bergman Island because Bergman uh, resided there for for decades and made uh, many important uh works there including including scenes from a marriage and persona and and plenty of other uh bergman classics and so it's a very elusive film uh, uh, the two of them end up staying in and sleeping in the same bed uh that scenes from a marriage uh <laughs> it was from scenes of a marriage and, and of course they have a somewhat shaky relationship which is really not what you want to bring into that space i wouldn't think but um but this is a fascinating movie. I mean, it's about uh, two, these two characters who are on somewhat separate tracks or have different sensibilities as filmmakers. Tim Roth is, you know, making these genre films. He's, already, you know, highly acclaimed. There's a screening of one of his films at one point. It, you know, people are showing up for like a master class. Vicky Reeves' character is a little bit less certain of herself. Uh, the writing process for her, unlike him, is much more tortured. And just the, the this kind of separate trajectories of their careers and their processes um cause a lot of uh tension very interesting tensions in the movie but those tensions are not handled as they would be in a Bergman film uh her sensibility and Bergman's sensibility are nothing alike and you end up and and of course in, in Faroe Island through the lens of Bergman of the film Bergman Island it looks like it looks impossible that there could be conflict of the of the uh, you know an austerity of the level that you expect from ingmar bergman it is it is a beautiful place and uh and it, there's even kind of almost like a napa valley-like tour of the island uh, that you could take a, a Bergman tour where you could do, do various locate, you know, see various locations. Any case, it's a lovely movie. You know, it's got some interesting, uh, you know, it's it's got a lot of uh, fun sort of Bergman arcana. And then it, and then it really kind of comes to life in this movie within a movie where Vicky Creeps kind of describes the story that she wants to tell. And the story involves uh, Mia Wasikowska. And uh, when that layer is added to it, uh, and this film is nothing but a film of many lovely you know, multi layers, it really kind of comes to life for me. I think, I think it's a tremendous achievement F- from a filmmaker who, who really is interested in, you know, who's, who's it, it folds in well with her other work too. films like, uh, goodbye, uh, first love, especially. So I, I highly recommend it. It's IFC films. So it's kind of trickling about the country in independent theaters, but I'm sure it'll find its way somewhere that people can can access no matter where they are but not quite yet so i just look look for it at your local art house if uh if you can cuz it is a terrific movie bergman island keith
3: i also have a film although it'll be a, a film that could only be watched on a streaming service and i'm a couple years behind on this one six underground yeah, absolutely. That six underground. Uh, no, it's a film that that at the time uh, people were talking about. Oh, hey, it's good. It's too bad no one's watching it, and and people, uh, there's nobody's watching it, including uh, well the people who people who should have been watching it that weren't uh, included me. That's uh, a film called The Report, uh, starring Adam Driver. I watched it because I was writing a piece on Adam Driver. That's a big Adam Driver film I had not seen. Mm-hmm. It is directed by uh, Scott Z Burns. It is the true story of a report uh, being re- re- uh, prepared about the. Uh, torture uh, uh, by the CIA during the um, you know war in Afghanistan, war on terror and driver plays uh, Daniel Jones a, a dogged investigator determined to see the report. Through, uh, in a stuck in a system that doesn't necessarily want it to, to, all this to come to light for various reasons. People uh, on you know people on the Republican side, people part part of the Bush administration, people part of the Obama administration. Uh, it is um, really quite well done. Uh, it's a really great driver performance, and uh, it is a depressing uh, dramatization of how hard it is to get anything done inside a democracy, frankly, uh, even uh, when you have uh, allies who essentially want the same thing, it may not be politically expedient to, to pursue that. So it's, it's relevant about a very particular issue, but I think it's also kind of relevant about how politics are done in general. And uh, it is on Amazon prime uh, and it is worth your time.
2: It's really good. Yeah, I, I, You know, it was so buried and forgotten about almost in a way that was like, depressingly apropos yeah yeah <laughs> you know, that, that here's a here is a film uh that works incredibly hard with with incredible diligence to present the details of the story about someone who works hard and incredibly diligently to bring you something this urgent yeah and, and in both cases completely buried but uh really really good movie if you haven't well, seen it
3: it came out At around the same time as Marriage Story and Star Mm -hmm. Wars, The Rise of Skywalker, and it's kind of like, we don't have room for a third Adam Driver movie (laughs) in our hearts at the end of 2019. But uh, I do hope people will get around to to discovering it uh, in time. And that's the report. Uh, It's on Amazon Prime, directed by Scott Z. Burns.
1: Well, thank you for all of that. I I will say that our uh, intended pivot to, hey, it's okay to watch TV too, has an unexpected downside, which is uh, we're assigning people even more hours of viewing than we already (laughs) had before. So thank you for giving everybody so much homework. And that's it for this edition of The Next Picture Show. Our next pairing is November 9 and 16. Scott, what do we have on tap?
2: The new Edgar Wright film Last Night in Soho pays homage to dozens of inspirations, from giallo classics like Suspiria and Blood and Black Lace to British horror films like Peeping Tom and The Innocents. But its story about women from two different time periods whose stories and personalities gradually converge recalled for us the great Ingmar Bergman masterpiece Persona from 1966. In the first of 10 collaborations with Bergman, Liv Allman stars as a stage actress who just suddenly stops speaking or moving in the middle of a performance. Bibi Anderson plays a young nurse who is asked to take care of her at her doctor's seaside retreat under the hope that the peaceful locale will help the actress recuperate. But the psychological friction that results is anything but peaceful. On our next set of episodes, we'll be converging two time periods of our own by bringing Persona and Last Night in Soho together and seeing Double, twice. Please join us.
1: In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of Lawrence of Arabia, Dune, and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. Finally, before we close out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Keith and Scott, do you want to do this jointly at this point? (laughs)
3: <laughs> sure, why not? Well, All right,
2: you, I, you say one word, then I'll say the next word, and then we'll do it, we'll do it that way.
3: <laughs> well, we're we're being paired as as listeners know because because Scott and I uh, have a newsletter called The Reveal. It's at thereveal.substack.com, and it, it gets a it's a nice focus for a lot of our writing, reviews, essays, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. It's a lot of fun. I'm I'm still having fun. How about you, Scott?
2: Uh, yeah yeah i'm not ready to murder you yet. <laughs>
3: <laughs> and be, be, beyond that for, for my sake you can find me on twitter at k5 3000 and you can find a lot of my writing at places like gq vulture and tv guide scott how yeah. about you where can we find you besides the well, well, yeah people should smash
2: that subscribe button i get to say that now smash that subscribe button <laughs> um uh you can find me on twitter at scott underscore tobias and i'm still incredibly doing it the same amount of, if not more, <laughs> freelance work that I was doing before. Uh, yeah, I'm not sleeping much. Uh, <laughs> I'm I, I, writing for Vulture and writing for the New York Times uh, and writing for uh, the Guardian and, and other places as well. Uh, uh, Genevieve,
0: I, I am the senior TV editor at Vulture, where I assign people like Scott and Keith to write about TV. Sometimes Scott, I get, I get, there's a place for it. Uh, and you can find me on Twitter at Genevieve Koski. Tasha,
1: I just want to say when they say they're doing a lot of writing at the reveal, they're not kidding, man. I have been getting these daily bulletins, and there's there's so
3: much. It, it, we took what we took one day off.
1: It we honestly, did. it feels like being back with Dissolve again. I'm like, I, I don't know how you guys uh, are are keeping up. Uh, apparently, not by sleeping. <laughs>
2: Yeah, no, it, things will slow down. I, we will uh, we will we'll get there.
1: Uh I am the film and television editor, soon to be the film and streaming editor because uh next Ooh. week we're bringing in an, a TV editor, a full-time TV editor at Ooh. polygon.com. Where we're about to do a similar exhausting deluge of content for uh, the last week of Halloween on horror tropes. And I would urge everybody to uh, tune in and check up on our extensive breakdown of all of the the tropes in horror. I'm currently writing a piece about why horror is the tropiest genre that you'll ever know. And you can imagine what song has been running through my head for the past several (laughs) days. You can find me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. You can stay updated on the Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net and via Twitter at nextpicturepod. You can contribute to our Patreon and get bonus content at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. If you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, please consider it and please consider rating and reviewing us, which will help other people find your very favorite podcast in the entire world. And it makes us happy. Yeah, well, there's that too thanks to dan the bake jakes who also makes us happy with his assistance in producing this podcast the next picture show is proud to be part of the film spotting family of podcasts please tune in next time